of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Thank you for joining me today as I am continuing through the Psalm Project, and we are on the downhill side of this, if that's what you want to call it. We are we have gone over the top. We are in the second half of this Psalm Project. We're here in Psalm 76, another Psalm of Asaph. It is a song to the choir master with stringed instruments. And so this psalm celebrates a great victory over Israel's enemies. And from the New New Testament perspective, this is a song that praises God for his victory at the cross. And it really looks forward to the great and the final victory over evil at the end of the age. And you could read about that a lot in the book of Revelation, specifically Revelation 19. Um, there's so much about that. We know what is going to happen. As Christians, as believers, we know what will happen. It's as if it has already um, happened. You, you know, when someone makes a promise to you and you you know that they are going to keep their word, is it, it is as good as if it already happened. And so here we are in Psalm 76, a psalm of praise. And um, I have again, like the previous psalm, set this in a very slow and worshipful setting. This does have five set, uh, stanzas. Very simple, uh, but easily utilized in the context of corporate worship. So let's take a look at it, starting in verse 1. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The, stout, the, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. So a short uh, psalm, but... Uh, There's a lot here, actually. Let's just break this down a little bit, starting with verse 2. mentions some geographical locations. It says, His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Uh, Salem is the ancient name for Jerusalem, and God's tabernacle is his sanctuary. So the tabernacle was a tent, but the temple that replaced it could still be called a a tent poetically, if you want to use it in that way. And obviously Zion, we've seen this quite a bit, the mountain where the temple was situated. Verse 3, there he broke 
the flashing arrows. In other words, God defeated the enemy at Jerusalem. A good example of this type of battle uh, would be the, the siege of Sennacherib. This happened in 701 BC. You can read about it in 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah 37. Um, I think 2 Kings 19 would give you more information, uh, but Sennacherib, uh, uh, this was the king of Assyria. He reigned from about 720 B.C. till about 683 B.C. Uh, archaeologists have actually uncovered the remains of his palace. Um, he was the king of Assyria, and he defied the Lord. And so you see Isaiah prophesying in um, both... Uh, 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah 37, he prophesies about Sennacherib's fall. And I'm not going to read all of it for you, but just know you can read about that and read about the fall of Sennacherib. And so this is a great example of this type of battle where um, God defeated, uh, in verse 3 as it says, you broke the flashing arrows, the seal, uh, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Talking about there where it says in verse 2, his abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows. And this is a, an example of that type of battle where there in Jerusalem, uh, that was where Sennacherib's fall occurred. And then verse 4, glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. There's nothing in this world that can compare to the majesty of our Lord. Verse 5, stout-hearted, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. In other words, God has destroyed powerful soldiers. They're no match for him. I think sometimes we forget that. Nothing in this world or out of this world compares to God. Sometimes people get the idea that Satan is the equal opposite of God. That somehow he has equal power to God, and he is um, he is the counterpart. He is the equal counterpart to God. That is not the case. Satan has no ability compared to God. Satan is not omniscient. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not uh, nearly as powerful as God. No one and nothing is. So we as believers should take comfort in that, that nothing will ever destroy him or even come close to it. We have nothing to worry about. That's why scripture says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Nothing can be against God. Nothing can be against us. You probably hear my dog barking in the background. He is wanting my attention. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah. My point is, nothing is as powerful as God. Uh, we as Christians have nothing to worry about. Uh, moving on. Verse 6. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Uh, the, the word I want to focus on here is rebuke. God's rebuke is the word of his powerful judgment. And at his rebuke, the forces of chaos and evil flee before him, and peace reigns. If you remember the story in Matthew 8 of Jesus, he calmed the storm. He calmed the sea. The disciples were amazed by it. 
Nahum 1, 4, I think I've read this before, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. That is the power of God. That is, at his rebuke, everything obeys him. Verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. God's wrath brings praise because it is directed against the wicked and the unjust who afflict the poor and the vulnerable. If you remember in Psalm 9, um, verse 18, For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. The phrase poor and needy often in the book of Psalms, even in the Old Testament in general, uh, it appears frequently. Uh, and the meaning sometimes means literal poverty, but the words can also be used figuratively to express a total dependence on God. Uh, for example, when Jesus in the Beatitudes said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, so poverty is not a notorious, uh, a notorious situation. You shouldn't just you know strive to be poor because that makes you better. That's not the point. But God does give special attention uh, to the oppressed. And you see that in the book of Psalms. Uh, Jeremiah equates bringing justice and righteousness uh, to the poor and needy with knowing God. Jeremiah 22. He, he, if you know God, bringing justice and righteousness to the poor and needy is what you will do. And this was an explicit responsibility of those in power. And so... Um, when we talk about social justice, yes, that is absolutely something Christians are called to. Um, we need to be careful, though, because there is certainly uh, an overemphasis on social justice, and has been for a while. This is not a new thing. Um, I would say it really increased in the 20th century, not just in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and what I mean by that, an overemphasis is if... You bring social justice, okay, any act that is for the purpose of social justice that does not point someone to the gospel is an exercise in futility, okay? So feeding the poor, that's a great thing to do. But if you are not pointing someone to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is futile. It is pointless and it accomplishes nothing ultimately because their eternal uh, lives, their souls are at stake. And you've just fed them food for a meal. That's all you've done. And so uh, when, when this psalm here is talking about the wrath of God, the wrath of God um, is poured out on those who are unjust um, the reason I say the gospel is the point of any type of social justice activity we take part in, uh, the reason the gospel is the point is because it has an eternal purpose. It glorifies God. And so God here is pouring out his wrath and his judgment on people who do not glorify him, who do not point to the gospel, who, who execute unjust laws or acts. And so God's wrath brings praise because it's directed against those who are wicked, those who are unjust, those who afflict the poor and the vulnerable. And then in verse 11, make your vows to the Lord, your God, 
and perform them. If you want to read about, about vows, I certainly will not do this, but Leviticus 27 is an entire chapter about vows. God takes vows seriously, and especially those that we make to him. He keeps his vows. It's us. If anybody strays from the vow, it is us. It is people. Um, this psalm, as I said, is a psalm of praise that celebrates victory. Um, but I did not set it in a um, loud, fast, boastful setting. It is actually a slow and worshipful setting. And so um, uh, you, I think the text actually stands out more this way. And you can focus more on the text. Uh, so here it is. Here is Psalm 76 set to music. Thank you for listening today to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones.
of princes and by kings of 